not only do I feel out of the loop by, by not being here, by not having it be so immediate, consider I'm also three hours behind. When the workday begins in LA, it's already lunchtime here. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. We're broadcasting today from the Washington Center of the LBJ School of Public Affairs from the University of Texas at Austin. Now, the Washington Center is aimed at two primary missions. Its cornerstone is a two-semester-long program for Masters of Public Affairs, Masters of Global Policy Studies students from UT Austin who began their career spending their first year in Austin and their last year in Washington immersed in an apprenticeship program exposed to the Washington policy environment and getting a head start on their colleagues who are entering the job market once they graduate. And we're here today because our guest, Bert, is a proud alum of the LBJ School of Public Affairs. In fact, has been extremely involved in the program through the National Alumni Board, the DC Alumni Board, and the Steering Committee for the Washington Center. She's also a poster child for the Washington program. You'll see her on many posters around town, on school bus stops, on school buses, and I'm thrilled to have her here today. So, Jen, cheers. <laughs> Cheers, Bill. Thanks for having me. That is a crazy introduction. <laughs> Jen is currently the Associate Vice President for Government Relations and Community Affairs at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she got her undergraduate degree and would probably tell you she's more Bruin than a Longhorn, but she wears the Longhorn hat proudly and she's been so involved in the LBJ School of Public Affairs that we are proud to have her as one of our own. She recently started at UCLA after a long and storied career of government relations for higher education here in Washington. She's worked as a consultant. She's worked in Capitol Hill for now speaker Nancy Pelosi. And she was in the University of California DC office before starting a long storied career with the Association of Public and Land Grant Universities as vice president of government relations. Let me start at the back end of that. You're so well known as the voice in the face of higher education for APLU, but you've also been very engaged in the community of Washington. You've been an activist, you've been a volunteer, you've been engaged in so many activities that you really had become a mainstay of the Washington scene. So why after such a long career and a great reputation, why did you decide to pick up stakes and move to Los Angeles to start this new career? I have to say, it was um, it was not an easy decision to leave D.C. I had been here quite a while. I, actually, I moved here 
for two years, 26 years ago. So, so 26 years, long time, more than half my life spent here, and I'd really built community, as you, as you indicated, professional and personal community here. So it was not an easy decision to leave, uh, but this was sort of an opportunity of a lifetime, working for my alma mater, going back to, uh, to the beautiful UCLA campus, and, um, and, and doing this work, government relations work, for uh, you know, for an institution I really uh, care for and love, uh, I, um, I I think UCLA was just the exact right institution. Uh, so I feel I feel really lucky. Also, my family's out in California, so I've been really far away from my folks and my siblings for a long time. So this was uh, this was just sort of the the right reason uh, at the right time. Well, that makes all the sense in the world. Now, I've worked with a number of people over the years who have found the exit out of Washington and when they've left to go back to their hometown or somewhere else where an opportunity has been waiting for them. But they consistently talk about being out of the loop as soon as they leave DC. I mean, they're not getting the information flow that they're used to. They're not up to speed that they used to be on the topics and the issues of the day. Have you found that a challenge since you made the move? Oh my goodness, absolutely. Not, not only do I feel out of the loop by, by not being here, by not having it be so immediate, I, so consider I'm also three hours behind. Uh, so, so, you know, when, when the workday begins in LA, it's already lunchtime here. Uh, and so I'm, I, I'm always feeling uh, like I'm catching up. Uh, on on the federal side, personally, I don't I don't mind arriving into the office a little early so we could you know have a have a morning conversation with folks here in um, uh, in DC. But it's uh, yeah, it, it does make it a little a little bit more challenging on, on that front. And then just not not having all my attention on what's happening here, what's happening on the Hill, what's happening with the administration um, is. It definitely makes it difficult. So what eats up the rest of your attention? So um, state issues and uh, local government issues and, and then the community issues that, um, that I'm really, and those are, those are the fronts that I've, I've not had any prior experience with. So I'm, I'm needing to jump into that and learn those people, as, as you know well, this, this job, no matter at what level of government, this job is about building relationships. Um, and so knowing, getting to know the people who represent UCLA and the surrounding areas in the State House, as well as in, in City Hall and at our Board of Supervisors, those are, you know, that, that takes a lot of time. It's a fantastic, super fun part of the job. I'm also learning about UCLA. So yes, I was a student there just a, just a few years ago. <laughs> and a, a lot has changed since I've been a student there. And also, I, I certainly didn't know everything about the campus that is important to this work um, when I was a student. So I'm learning a lot about you know what, uh, what the leaders of our campus are interested in promoting uh, to, to different levels of government, um, what our concerns are, what our strengths are, um, uh, what we have to share. So it's, um, it's, it's all been 
fantastic, really, really fun, and completely exhausting. But you've talked about the local government, the board of supervisors, the state government, but is it also the broader UCLA community? So it is. It's the UCLA community and the Los Angeles community, right? So, so we're looking at um, not just our sort of neighborhood councils, because there are definitely issues that any university has to has to work through with your with your local neighborhood community, but you know UCLA is is in it's 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 kind of crazy to think about, but as a public institution in a and you know top notch public institution in a major metropolitan area, we're we're pretty unique in the country. Um, uh, and and we're we're in a part of um, of LA that's that tends to be um, uh, a little wealthier than than LA broadly. Um, so what part of LA is it in? We're in a neighborhood called Westwood, and Westwood abuts Bel Air, Brentwood. Uh, it's not very far from Beverly Hills, so it's um. It's it's certainly um, a, uh, a, a higher income uh, area of Los Angeles, and as opposed to your counterparts up a bit up the road, but that doesn't necessarily necessarily reflect the student body, does it? That's that's actually very correct, right? Right. So um, so Bill's referring to our um, our crosstown rivals, the University of Southern. California, um, and and USC is in a, it's in a, a traditionally historically certainly when I was in school a much tougher neighborhood still um, still pretty rough around the edges but downtown LA is also seeing um, a, a bit of revival I guess might be the word definitely gentrification um, so so that that part of town is changing as well. Um, uh, UCLA being the, the major public university in the city of Los Angeles um, uh, has, has a obligation and, um, and a need to really be involved in Los Angeles city and, uh, and the greater Southland region. Um, so uh, so that, that involves having us uh, Get engaged with um, K-12 institutions, um, uh, working with um, uh, with other community foundations, with the local chambers of commerce, um, uh, organizations that are involved not just in how the government works in uh, in the area, but how how the city and 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 the neighborhoods work uh, throughout LA. And so that is that is very new to me. It's also probably the most exciting part of this job because you're really interacting with people and and helping the institution UCLA be engaged in in making a difference in people's lives. So is that a real opportunity or, or do you notice sometimes that it's a challenge? I mean, I know you're new to this, but can it also be a challenge that people see UCLA, they see how gorgeous it is, they know what part of town you're in? Is there some sort of inherent friction with neighborhood councils, or, or is it more of an opportunity because they see the benefit? 
there are definitely both challenges and opportunities uh, to, to the community relations component. Uh, I think that overall, the, it's, it's more of an opportunity than a challenge. There, part of it is also dispelling myths that people might have about, about the university. And you know, people might have an idea about what this you know ivory tower institution does and and who it serves. And um, part of our our goal is to be out there and um, and to talk about the fact that UCLA uh, uh, is 40% Pell Grant students. So Pell Grant students are students of particularly uh, low income families, and um, and and we we educate. 35% of our undergraduates are first time are, are the first in their family to go to college. Um, so there's there's a lot um, that that we want to do to serve our community and a lot that we're 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 doing well. We also recognize there's a lot more we can be doing. So that's that's part of what you know, those are the challenges. What what more can we do and how do we do so that? So let's shift to the government relations part of your responsibilities, I mean, because that's your background. Probably not as steep of a learning curve, but it's got to be a lot different. I mean, because you spent years up here working for a trade association as the face of the association before the Hill, the administration, regulatory agencies. And in that role, you had to gather all of this information from all of your members and somehow filter it down to a position and a message that members could generally agree upon. Now you're on the opposite side of the fence. You're only concerned about UCLA. Have you noticed that difference already? It's, it's definitely a difference. I mean, my, my responsibilities are very different than, than they were when I was with APLU. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's it's liberating, you know, working for one institution and and having the having the opportunity to um, to to speak for that one institution and not not have to worry about perhaps lowest common denominator of uh, of an association of you know 200 institutions. Um, uh, and uh, it, it also is, you know, it's a big, it's a, it's a responsibility. It's a big responsibility to think about um, uh, putting forward. This is where UCLA is because we're, we're now not, not in a, I, I'm now working for a very tangible organization, very tangible institution, rather than a, a more amorphous um, uh, association. Has to be different as well because. You were polling all the members at APLU. You were trying to come up with a message that had to be a response to some policy initiative. But it seems like working for a specific institution can be more proactive in a sense. I mean, when you're pushing more information out, trying to get a particular point or position somewhere before some decision maker. Is that an accurate description? Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely correct, Bill. So, uh, so I think sort of instinctively, especially on the, the federal level, given that I've worked in that arena for so long, I know what UCLA's position will be. the 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 broader message that our um, that our research uh, university community 
has, uh, has come to take and, uh, and direct it to the members of, um, uh, the members of Congress uh, who represent the LA area. Because, and I used to say this all the time when I was uh, with APLU, nobody really cares what APLU has to say, but everybody, every member of Congress is going to care about what their local university has to say. We help provide the message to the, uh, the, the members in the LA area. And that, that happens also on the state level. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thinking about getting that message out to members, and particularly those you have a constituent relationship with, and let's just focus on the federal side of this for a second. Sure. So, how do you deliver that message? What kind of tools are you using? What kind of product are you producing? How are you delivering okay. UCLA's message so, in DC? Um, I should talk about our office structure a little bit. We've got we've got folks. Um, my team includes uh, people who work only on federal issues. So. To, um, to great uh, legislative staff who are, and, and they've been there um, longer than I have, so they've already developed the, the relationships with the, um, with the local, um, the, the LA congressional delegation. Um, and uh, so typically what we do is reach out directly to the offices, to the LAs and the, and the, and the legislative directors, um, would, that, would that be the L.A.s from L.A.? <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's good. Thanks, Bill. Um, <laughs> so we, um, we reach out to, uh, to the L.A.s with the, the particular issue um, focus and the legislative directors and sometimes the chiefs and, um, and communicate our message. So we do that by email, with phone calls. When, um, when there's a, a real sort of pressing issue that, uh, that requires contact with, um, with a member of Congress, we work to try to connect the chancellor with that member of Congress and, uh, and make, make that link directly, leader to leader of, um, of the institutions. And, um, and, and that you know, it doesn't happen that often because oftentimes, our, our, our messages are, um, are, are being really received well by our delegation. So we're, when, when we are asking for members to vote in support of, I'll give you an example. Uh, we, we are looking at a big budget deal, hopefully coming down the road uh, here in Washington to, um, uh, to increase the caps. Uh, the budget caps that would then allow for more spending uh, this fiscal year and next fiscal year. So, um, so what we're doing in that case 
is um, uh, working with the chancellor on a letter that will go to everybody in our delegation, urging them to support the increase in caps. Now, of course, as you know well, not every member of Congress is really going to have much of a say in increasing the caps because that deal has to come together at a very high level. We're lucky in the state of California. We've got two of, uh, of the, the main House leaders. Speaker of, uh, of the House is a Californian, and the minority leader is a Californian. And so we are, we are lucky in that we can, we can resonate with, with both of them as a major institution in their state. Um, so we'll, what we'll do is not just reach out to our own local delegation, we'll reach out to, to the leadership as well, um, and uh, of course to our senators, uh, and then ask our local delegation to reach out to those leaders too and urge that deal. Um, it's definitely, um, that's, that's a big priority for us right now on the federal side. If we don't see, you know, for, for not just for us, of course, for all, all universities and, and frankly for a lot of other um, interests in, in towns. So you, um, you started this by pointing out every one of the staff you reach out to. You can't overestimate the importance of reaching out to staff, can you? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, you people, there's always an assumption from the outside that you, particularly if people come to town as a constituent or on a fly-in basis, that if they don't see the member of Congress, they've failed. Why is that a wrong proposition? Bill, you really, uh, you, you hit it on the head. So, um, uh, so as, again, as you know well, staff make the offices run. Members of Congress certainly set the tone for their office, and, and but, it, it, you know, no member of Congress has the ability to have 58 meetings a day and, uh, and, and run the traps on every bill that they may be voting on. They, they rely on staff to communicate to them in abbreviated format what what is important, how a bill is important to their constituents, how their constituents may view any kind of an issue, so that when they have the opportunity to vote on a bill in committee or on the floor, they have the pulse on what their constituents and the, and the organizations in their district or near their district um, think about. Well, and you saw that firsthand. You were in LA for yes. the now speaker. But you, what about that time stands out the most in terms of the experience you gained that has led you down this path to where you are today? So, so there were several experiences, and, and I, I only worked for um, then Congresswoman Pelosi, sort of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, everyday Congresswoman, but I will say she was never an everyday Congresswoman. That's, that's, that, is, that is the fact. Um, but uh, I only worked for her for a couple of years, and Every day, I, I was able to to learn something. I'll, I, I will say that working in Washington, if if you if you if someone is interested in having a, a career in Washington, um, especially in government affairs, working on Capitol Hill, even if it is only for a couple of years, is 
the the best ex the best experience that you will have to then translate to your your job as a as a lobbyist as an advocate, um, uh, because because then you know what those staff are dealing with every single day, and it is a constant barrage. Uh, you know, every district has the same number of constituents, and and. Every district has constituents who are very interested in making their viewpoints known to their member of Congress. So it is constant phone calls and now constant emails. Back when I was on the Hill, it was postcards and letters. And we, we communicated back to all those constituents what, um, what the Congresswoman's views were in, in response to their questions and, and their advocacy. Uh, so, so understanding the pressure that, that staff has on a daily basis, I think is just important to then be able to, um, uh, to reach out to them appropriately, not be too demanding, um, uh, but, to, but to be um, demanding enough so that you can, um, persistent enough, I should say, so that, so that you can uh, effectively convey your um, uh, your organization, my university's interests. So, uh, so recognizing that each um, each house uh, member has just a handful of staff that cover all the issues that that Congress deals with, which are multiple, multiple, multiple. Um, these are these are really busy people, <laughs> and uh, and you want to be. Um, uh, respectful of their time, um, you know, without without disrespect, th these staff people often have to take meetings in the hallway of uh, the congressional offices. You don't you don't always get to sit in a nice fancy office and and have your meeting. Sometimes you're you're standing by a windowsill and there are people walking by, and you, you can't be offended by uh, by that. You have to you have to recognize. That's you know that's the best this person can do right now because all the other spaces in the office are are being used. <laughs> when I was wet behind the ears, new lobbyist in town, I was charged with dealing with an office that wasn't too friendly to us because no one else wanted to do it right. And there was one person in particular who I'm not going to name because you know probably know her well <laughs> that you had to see on this topic, and I was warned going in that I would get immediate feedback on where I stood with her based on where the meeting took place. Oh, if it was by her desk, I was golden. If it was in the front <laughs> office by the receptionist, she was warming to me. And if it was outside in the hallway, I still had a long road to go. That's a great story. And but it does, it's not that way. But what you're saying is sometimes it's just the uh, space, the time, the availability, and the crunch of activity. Where you right. just have to be prepared to do deliver your message. For quickly because you don't know if that meeting will will if you'll really get a full half hour for that meeting mostly you need to you need to be sure you get your message out in in your first minute and then you can expand on why your position is as it is uh, the classic elevator speech approach. Exactly. Yeah. exactly so was the LA job your first intent you had spent six years in college you come with a master's degree to DC I assume you knew going to DC was a goal was a goal to be a legislative assistant, or did you have higher aspirations? Oh, I, I definitely wanted to work on Capitol Hill. I didn't really know what the possibilities were. 
um, uh, I knew that there was Capitol Hill and there was the administration and there were a lot of other organizations and I did cast my net far and wide and I just feel like I was the luckiest person in the world because if I could have chosen who to work for, um, it would have been my hometown member of Congress. And how lucky was I that I got to do that? So was it from there you went to the UC office here yes, in DC? How did right. that come about? Did, did they come and seek you because they had worked with you or did so, you sniff it out? After, after a couple years working on the Hill, and literally, as I mentioned earlier, when I when I came to DC, I thought I'll be here for two years, then I'll then I'll go back home to California and and you know take that experience and put it to good use in in San Francisco or LA or somewhere in California, right? Save the world, right? Exactly. Um, uh, but after two years, I still hadn't had enough of DC, and I thought, well, maybe I'll give it another couple years, another two or so years. Um, but I but I, I want to see another aspect of how this city works. And so I was looking to work as, a, as an advocate, lobbyist, for another entity. And, um, and I was looking at a real variety of, of opportunities. And then the University of California job um, came to my attention. And I think I saw an, an ad in Roll Call. And I, uh, I thought, wow, well, that would be something. I could work for an organization, you know, I could work for the UC system, I was a UC grad, um, and do that here, that keeps my connection to California, which is very important to me always, and, uh, and it, was a, it was great. I, I didn't stay for two years, I stayed for 11 years <laughs> at the UC office, so I, I ended up enjoying it quite a lot, and, and the bug, the DC bug had, had bitten me really hard by then. So uh, you've had this story career, we mentioned many of your snops along the way. I've known you for a long time, Jennifer Polakitas, and I did not know that you were a U.S. commerce aide in Athens, Greece. You have to tell us that. Well, this was, this I owe totally to my LBJ school experience. So that, that takes us back to the start of our conversation. So while at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, it's a two-year master's program, and in between those two years, that summer, uh, LBJ school students are required to um, do an internship, and um, and and the you know the opportunities were basically endless. We could work in Austin, we could work uh, you know across the globe, and I've always had um, a real interest in uh, in international affairs, and I thought, well, you know, I'd be I could possibly be interested in. In working internationally, let me let me spend my internship time and and try to figure that out. There was a, a, a neat opportunity at the U.S. Embassy in Athens, Greece, working for the commercial counselor, uh, and uh, and this guy was just a fantastic mentor. Turns out he's now uh, now teaches at Austin Community College. He retired from uh, retired from the Foreign Service and now is at. Um, now in Austin himself, uh, and wow, what an experience this was! Including that it taught me, I did not want to do um, the foreign service. I saw what a um, what a toll it was on uh, on individuals and families, and the constant moving around. And wow, that's exciting. 
I thought that I didn't see that being a, a way of life for for me at least. Um, but it, it was a great experience. Oh, it had to be. So. Well, and that's about all the time we have here on Eighty Proof Politics. I want to thank you, Jen, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest, Bert. And just remember, kids, no matter what you think about politics in D.C. these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's still room to fill your drink. Thanks Cheers. Cheers. What an honor. Thank you. You did great. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel.